All right, open your Bibles to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. And I entitled this message tonight, The Joy of Being in God's House. The Joy of Being in God's House. It, it could be maybe a little misleading because the joy was really is of being in the presence of the Lord, as we'll see as we go along in the psalm. But Psalm 84 has been one of my favorite psalms for a long time. Psalm 84 is one of the Psalms of Zion, which means the Psalms of Zion celebrate God's presence in Jerusalem, the city where the temple was built. Now, Zion was a name that was used for the city of Jerusalem, the land of Judah, and the people of Israel. And today, we, have, uh, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to get close to God. Because God is near to those who trust in his son. The theme of this psalm is God's living presence is our greatest joy. And his presence helps us to grow in strength, grace, and glory. Spurgeon said this about Psalm 84. He said, this psalm well deserved to be committed to the noblest of the song, sons of song. No music could be too sweet for its theme or too exquisite in sound to match the beauty of its language. Sweeter than the joy of the winepress is the joy of the holy assemblies of the Lord's house. Not even the favored children of grace who are like the sounds of Korah, who are like the sons of Korah can have a richer subject for song than Zion's sacred festivals. It matters little when this psalm was written or by whom, for our part it exhales to us a Davidic perfume. It smells of the mountain heather and the lone places of the wilderness where King David must have often lodged during his many wars. This sacred ode is one of the choicest of the collection. It has a mild radiance about it, entitling it to be called the Pearl of Psalms. If the 23rd Psalm be the most popular and the 103rd Psalm the most joyful and the 119th the most deeply experimental and the 51st the most plaintive, this one, Psalm 84, is one of the most sweet of the Psalms of Peace. Now, pilgrimages or trips to the tabernacle were a major high point of, of Jewish life. And the families would travel together and they would form groups that, would, that, that grew as they made their way to the, to the temple. And every place that they stopped, they would camp in, in, in sunny open spaces, or I should say, they, they would, these, these groups would grow at, you know, at each place that they stopped. You know, they'd meet another family that would join in. They'd go a little further. They'd meet another family that would join in. And this, grow, this group would continue to grow as they made their way to Zion. And as they would go and there were time to stop, they'd, you know, they'd camp out in sunny places. They'd sing together in unison along the roads. They would work hard together to get over the hills and to get through the swamps. And as they went along, they were making happy memories that they'd never forget. And if somebody was left out of this holy gathering of the pilgrims and this devout worship of the congregation, they would find the perfect words for their sad soul in this psalm. This is a psalm of longing for God's house. Now, some say it's a psalm about people who were present in the temple, who served in God's house, and they were expressing here how strongly their souls wanted very much and even fainted for God. What they were saying is that their souls want very much to be in God's house. 
not because they were separated from it, but because that's where they were and wanted to be. It's why they were serving. So let's begin in Psalm 84 with verse 1. As the psalmist begins, he says, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. Notice he says, how lovely is your tabernacle. But the psalmist doesn't tell us how lovely God's house was. Why? Because he couldn't. Why couldn't he? He didn't have the words to express what he was feeling in his heart. Because the words that he uses shows us that the feelings that he had to be in God's house involved more than his words could describe. Being in God's house was love to the memory. Love to the mind, love to the heart, love to the eye, love to the whole soul. Love for the gathering of God's people. There's no other sight that I I believe that's more amazing than when believers get together to worship him. And when I, the night that I got saved, that to me was the most impressive thing of the whole night. I had never experienced anything like that. In the tent in Costa Mesa, when I went with Pastor Raw, now he took me that night. And there were, it seems like thousands of people. I know there were hundreds. But they were singing in unison and they were singing these, these amazing songs. And I had never heard anything like that. I had never been in the presence of anything like that. It was amazing to me. And, you know, when believers get together to worship him. And it's so important to understand that Spurgeon said this. He said, those are sorry saints who see nothing lovely in the services of the Lord's house. Sorry saints. The whole temple was lovely to the psalmist. The outer court, the inner court. It didn't matter to him. You know what? And it shouldn't matter. He loved every part of God's house. Every cord, every curtain, every nut, every bolt, every pole, every dedicated thing and every piece of furniture, everything in God's house was dear to the psalmist. Even when he was far away from God's house, he rejoiced when he would think about the holy tent where Jehovah God made his presence known. And he cried out with excitement when he thought about its holiness and the, and the solemn services there, as he had seen them performed in the past. Because it's your temple, he said, O Lord of hosts. That's why it's so dear to your people. God's house should be the center of the camp. It was in the Old Testament. When God built the tabernacle, he told, he told the Israelites to, to build around him, the east, west, side, uh, south, and north. And when the people would come out of their tents in the morning, the first thing that they would see was the tabernacle. It's a picture of God to be the center of the people's lives. Is he the center of our lives tonight? Is he the most important thing in our life tonight? It was the center of the camp. All of the creatures would gather around it. And where everybody's eyes are looking, they would see God's house. Verse 2. The psalmist goes on and says, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out, notice, for the living God. Why wasn't it good enough for the psalmist just to read his Bible? Or just to study? Why wasn't it good enough for the psalmist to just have warm, fuzzy thoughts about God? You know, you can have the greatest times of being spiritually refreshed in the comfort and privacy of your own home. Or in your office. 
You know, in, in the middle of God's creation, in nature. You know, people like to, you know, pull up a sand chair on the beach and look at the ocean and, and read and, and just have that spiritual experience. They like to go to the mountains and do the same thing. And all of us should have these kinds of thoughts and develop and treasure all of them. But here's the reality about man. Thinking about God has never really been good enough to satisfy any person that really knows the Lord. Because there's so many different sides to man. Man is not all thought. Man has a body. He has a soul. He has a spirit. There's many parts to man's makeup. And we have to be more concerned about our God than just thinking about him. And this psalm cries out for his revealed presence in the temple. I just don't want to go to church. I want to know the God of the church. The psalmist just doesn't go to church. He wants to meet God there. When you're in love with somebody, warm and fuzzy feelings and warm and fuzzy memories just don't get it. Thinking about them and seeing pictures of them, that's not enough to satisfy your need for that person. You want to see them. You want to talk to them and you want them to see you and you want them to talk to you. I want that warm communication and communion and fellowship. I want to be in their living presence. The psalmist said here, my soul longs, yes, even faints. Now, not every lovely thing gives us those fuzzy feelings that make us long or even faint for it. The word faint here means to be consumed with longing. In other words, the psalmist is dying of love. To be exact, so, he so passionately loves and is inflamed with such a great desire to get a hold of the thing that he loves. That he wastes and pines away. That is, he gets weaker unless he gets what he wants. So you see, a passionate longing is what's meant here. Is what's meant here which so torments and burns in the mind that the flesh and the spirit waste away as long as it's not allowed to enjoy the thing that's desired. He said the soul, the heart, the flesh cries out. It speaks of the whole man, his whole being, with every feeling and every affection. The words are so very meaningful. The word long here literally means has grown pale. As with the intensity of the feeling. The word faints is more exactly fails or is consumed. The word translated cry here is from the Hebrew meaning to shout or a shrill or cry out or rejoice to the living God. But the word is also used for the parent crying out for the child that they've lost. So here the similarity to longs. And faints for requires cry out for the Lord's court like something that was once enjoyed but is now absent and terribly missed. The Hebrew word means a strong cry for the living God. The psalmist was crying out for a strong desire for the living God. He wasn't, he wasn't crying out for the ceremonies that were performed in the house of God. He wasn't crying out for the songs that they sang or the sacrifices that they offered. He was crying out for the conscious presence of the living God. It wasn't the courts of the Lord's that he wanted. 
It wasn't the ritual and the songs that he wanted, but the conscience, living presence of God he cried out for in prayer for the living God himself. Oh, he says, that I might know him and that I might have communion with him again. You know, the Apostle Paul at the end of his life said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Now that was at the end of Paul's life. And I can't think of anybody that, that knew God more intimately than Paul. Remember, Paul had the, the, the experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he's saying, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. It tells us that you can't get enough of Jesus. We can't get enough of Jesus. Rituals and ceremonies, they're empty. If we don't meet with the God of those ordinances in those ordinances, like prayer and communion. Prayer is empty if I don't meet with, a, with, with the God of prayer. Communion is empty if I don't have communion with God himself. I want God, not, not the ceremonies, not the ritual. Verse 3. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. This is a beautiful picture here. The point that the psalmist was making here is that the birds made their home at the temple. And they were secure there. They had no fear of enemies. If only God's people would make their home in God, they'd find their security in him. Now, sparrows in the Bible are a symbol of something that, that didn't have much value. We read in Matthew 10, 29, that two sparrows could be sold for a copper coin. In Luke chapter 12, verse 6, we, can read, we read five sparrows could be sold for two copper coins. And a copper coin was the smallest and least valuable coin. And yet we read here that the sparrow found a home near God's altar. Won't God also provide a home for you? Who is worth a whole lot more than a sparrow? Swallows as well, like the sparrows, are also a symbol of worthlessness. A swallow is the Bible's symbol of restlessness. And if you've ever watched a swallow, it just darts, I mean, all over the place, it, like it doesn't know where it's going. It just, it, it just goes here and there and, and, and just, again, it's a picture of restlessness. It's a bird that's always flying in the air around, zooming around here and there from morning to night. But when it comes time to mate and to raise their young, the swallow builds its nest and it settles down near the altar to rest quietly. The swallow is the picture of a man's soul apart from God. It's going all over the place. It's going here. It's going here. There. It's searching for this. It's searching for that. But then, when that man finds God, it finally comes to rest. Like that swallow when it found its home, its nest near the altar of God. Proverbs 27, 8 says, Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. In other words, instinct teaches the bird that the nest is the only place of safety or rest. And here God has provided for her special protection. So you see, nothing but danger is waiting for her if she wanders from her nest. And if she wanders from her nest, she seldom returns without some kind of injury to herself or for her little ones. Now her nest might be cold 
It might be inconvenient. It might be boring. But you see, her wanderings make her more restless and more dissatisfied. And she's safe only while she stays in her nest. You see, it's not wise and it's also dangerous to leave the place, the people or calling that God's providence has called you to. You see, here man is in, in God's boundaries where God has placed him. So he's under God's protection. And if he's con- content to stay in his place, God will bless him there with the rich reward of godly contentment. But the man who wanders from his place is always restless and every new whim sends him off searching for something new. Always wanting to be something, always wanting to have something, always wanting to be doing something or finding something to be somewhere different than what, where that he should be. But then he's exposed to constant temptation and danger and he's only trading imagined troubles. For instance, being home. For real trouble. Many times, you know, we you know we get bored in our place or where, where God has put us, and and we we start to think, man, how great it would be if I was doing something else. That's that's a danger. There's no better and safer place for you to be than where God has put you. And if that's where God wants me to be, I couldn't be in a better place. Just like the prodigal son. He imagined being out of his under's, out of his, from under his father's roof and, and his father's rule. And, 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 you know, he just thought, it's going to be better out of here. I just, you know, if I get out of here, I'm going to have a good time and I'm going to live it up and everything's going to be wonderful. And he found out that wasn't true. That everything that he needed and the best things for him were at home. You see, it's wisdom to know and to keep our place. The soul and the body and the family, society, man, they all want a piece of us. (laughs) This restless anxiety, like the swallow, about being idle is, is the symptom of disease. And it's totally opposite and it's totally opposed to religion. Many times God has us in a place, it may not be exciting, it may just, you know, be mundane and, and we get this, Desire to to go out and and to find something new. That idleness becomes a nuisance to our comfort and our uselessness. To our sight, I'm sorry, to our usefulness. Because where God has me is where I can be the most useful. And the basic rule can't ordinarily be broken without sin. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 24, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. We cannot break this basic rule without sin. Whatever situation you were in when you became a believer, stay there in your new relationship with God. Then we will abide in fellowship with God because where where God wants us to be, we must abide in our calling. And we need to remember that every step that we take away from our calling without a clear spiritual or I should say a, a clear scriptural assurance is a departure from God. You see, we're safe as long as we're following the hand of God. But to go without God leading us 
or even worse, to deviate from the providence of God than a man wanders from his place at his own risk and his own cost. We can never step, take one step outside of God's will without having to pay a price. There's only one being in the world that doesn't fit in the world that he's in, and that's man. Other beings perfectly fit their, in their environment. Augustine said this, Our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. Why? Because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in our hearts. And nothing's going to give us peace until we find that eternal one, which is Christ. And so many people try to fit other things in that emptiness, in that eternal uh, place in our heart. And that's why they never find rest. They're like that swallow just darting about, going here and going there. Have you found rest in God today? Or are you still wandering and restless like so many people today? God offers you this rest, just like the sparrows and the swallows found at the altar of God. Even the swallow found a nest for herself where she could lay her young, he says, even at your altars. Look at verse 4. Here's the first blessing. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. This blessing is for those who live and work in the temple. Those, God, those that God highly regards or are highly favored are those who are constantly busy in godly worship. The servants that take care of God's house. Now to come and go, it's exciting. But to abide, which means to dwell in the place of prayer, is like heaven on earth. To be God's guests. Enjoying his kindnesses. And being set apart for God's holy work. Protected from a noisy world and familiar with the things of God. I mean, this is for sure the best heritage that a child of God can have. And we should be prepared for this blessing now because, you see, it was what this psalm has been about almost entirely up to this point. The psalmists were aware that the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by hands. Even though God did make a special appearance at the temple. When he descended in the form of the Shekinah glory to dwell within the most holy place. And even though that visible glory at some point had departed or would depart. The early worshipers all felt the presence of God in the temple and even in Jerusalem like no other place before. And that's why David wrote in Psalm 27, For one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell or abide in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's why the psalmist talks about longing and fainting for the courts of the Lord. Because God dwelled in Zion. The most favored of all human beings were those who lived there as well, especially those who, like the priests, actually worked in the temple. Whether they were making the sacrifices or leading worship. Blessed, it says here, are those who dwell or abide in your house. They will still be praising you or they will always be singing your praises. 
Because you see, being so near to God, their life has to be a life of worship. No divided hearts. No doubt that their hearts and their tongues never stop magnifying the Lord. Now here's the sad thing. The psalmist here drew a picture of what should be rather than what is today. See, unfortunately, those who are busy every day taking care of the place of public worship, they're not always the most enthused or committed. Yet in a spiritual sense, this is very true for those children who who abide in the Spirit of God, who abide in His house, spiritually speaking. They're always full of the praises of God. And understand that relationship is the source of worship. The greater my relationship with God, the greater my worship for him. But those who wander far from the Lord fail to praise him. But those who dwell in him, abide in him, they're always magnifying him. Verse 5, second blessing. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. There's a blessing for those who are making their way to God's house. Now, not everybody was able to live in Jerusalem. And most of the people were scattered throughout the country in small villages or family farms. The psalmist doesn't forget these people. In fact, he has a blessing for them as well. Verses 6 through 7. He says, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Verses 6 through 7 describe the blessings of those who would be making their way up to Jerusalem for the feasts. Every area they pass through will be blessed, he says here. Even the Valley of Baca, which is not a literal place. It's any place with tears, literally a valley of weeping. A geographic site named the Valley of Baca isn't found anywhere in Scripture. Baca is a Hebrew word that means balsam tree. And the sap of this balsam tree oozes like tears. So the Valley of Baca is a name for any difficult and painful place in life. Where everything seems hopeless and you feel helpless. But the people who love God, hey, they expect to go through this Valley of Baca. But not stay there. They get a blessing from this experience and they leave a blessing behind for others. They turn it into a spring. Notice. And it says they will go from strength to strength until each one appears before God in Zion. Not one person will be left behind. What a wonderful picture of the Christian life. Those who have come to know God in Christ, they're not looking for an earthly temple. And as we press forward toward that goal, we will pass through many valleys of Bacchus. We read in scripture, these are, one of, these are some of the promises that we don't mark down and highlight. We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. No one should be shaken by these afflictions for yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we should suffer tribulation. First Thessalonians 3, 3 through 4. And when I said that many of us through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God, that's Acts 14, 22. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. But then he gave the encouragement. He said, be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. 
Even though we will go through many valleys of Baca, we're not discouraged by them. Just the opposite. We rise above them and we go from strength to strength, strengthening each other along the way and blessing all that we meet. Verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. The psalmist says, let my cry be heard, Lord. Don't shut your ears to my, to my one prayer, even though I'm not worthy to be heard. Verse 9. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. God can be thought of as our shield to protect us from the enemy's blows. And the psalmist thinks lovingly of God as his defense from the dangers of this, this journey, this pilgrimage that he's on. And we can think of ourselves as God's anointed. And if God has brought us close, uh, 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 brought us close into a, a close and loving relationship of service to him, He's given us something to use in prayer. He says we can look upon, he says we can say, look upon, Lord, our face, the face of your anointed. Verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The psalmist means here that one day, think of it, one day spent in God's house would better be better than a thousand days spent anywhere else. Even under the best circumstances, where all the pleasures of the world could be experienced and enjoyed, they're not, they can't be compared so much as one in a thousand to the joy of serving God. To feel God's love and to rejoice in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. To look at the promises that God has given us and to feel the power of the Holy Spirit making real those precious truths to our heart. That's a joy that no worldly person can understand. But which true believers are overcome with. Even a a slight glimpse of God's love is better than ages spent in the pleasures of our flesh. The psalmist said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The lowest, most menial position in the Lord's house, if there is such a thing, is better than the highest position among the godless. The psalmist is saying, even if all I do is stand at the threshold of God's house and I get get to sneak a peek inside so that I can see Jesus, that is ecstasy to me. To do menial tasks, to open doors, to sweep the floors. For the Lord is more than I could ever deserve. And it's more honor than to live inside the tents of the wicked. Now every person has their choice, but this is ours. And God's worst is better than the devil's best. God's doorstep is a happier place to be, a happier rest than even the softest couches inside the most luxurious tents of royal sinners. Even though we might lie there for a lifetime of luxury. Notice how the psalmist calls the tabernacle the house of my God, my God. There's where the sweetness of this whole thing lies. If Jehovah is our God, his house, his altars, his doorstep, they all become so precious to us. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Notice, 
Heavenly pilgrims are not left uncomforted or unprotected. The pilgrim nation found both sun and shield in that fiery, cloudy pillar that was a symbol of God's presence. And the Christian still finds both light and shelter in their God today. He shines on us. He's what brightens our day. He's a shield from our enemies and the only possible source of favor and true honor. He's a sun for happy days and he's a shield for the dangerous ones. He's a sun above us and he's a shield around us. He's a light to show the way and he's a shield to ward off the dangers. And then the psalmist says, the Lord will give grace and glory. When it's needed, he'll give us both of them, grace and glory with total assurance. The Lord has, has both infinite grace and, and glory in Jesus That's the fullness of his grace. The Lord has both infinite grace and glory. Jesus is the fullness of both and being his chosen people. We'll receive both as a free gift from the God of our salvation. What uh, what more can we ask for? Grace and glory. What more could the Lord give? What more can we receive? What more could we want? And notice the psalmist says, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. That means in perfectness. You see, grace makes us walk uprightly. And this guarantees every blessing, every covenant blessing to us. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 10, those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. What a broad promise that is. What, a, what might seem like something good may be withheld notice what seems like something good to us god might withhold it but he said not any real good something that is good for us god's not going to withhold it god has everything that's good there's no good apart from him and there's no good that he he, that he either needs to keep back or will keep back for any refusing for any reason if, if we need it if we're ready if we're ready to receive it And it's good for us, he'll give it. But we have to be upright. We can't have anything to do with any kind of evil. And this uprightness has to be for real. We must walk in truth and holiness. And then we will be heirs of all things. Let's close now with verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Here's the third blessing. The third blessing is for those who simply trust in God. And in the end, here's what really matters. And this is what life is all about, trusting in God. So let's learn to seek after God together in the church by looking unto Jesus. If you want to learn about God come to, and to know him personally, start with the church. This is why we meet together. It's God himself that we long for. And it's in him alone that we will be satisfied. Not the fellowship of God's people, even as rewarding as that might be. Remember, John said, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. McLaren said this, if we want rest, let us hold on to God as ours. If we desire a home warm, safe, sheltered from every wind that blows and, and and inaccessible to enemies, let us, like the swallows, Nestle under the eaves of the temple. Let us take God for our hope. 
Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful psalm, God. Lord, help us to learn the difference between the ceremony and the real thing, God, the substance. Father, let us not just go to church, but let us go to meet the God of the church, God. Let us have this desire for the living God, the conscious presence of the living God, like the psalmist did, Lord. Let it not be about the building or the furniture or the, or, or the, or the things of the church, God. But it may it be because God comes and meets us here. Let us desire to be in the living, the conscious presence of the living God. Because it is possible. He came here and he dwelt among men. That we might have that relationship, that communion with him. 